Well, you know what today is? It's my brother-in-law's birthday. That's what it is. It's my brother-in-law's birthday. Can you imagine that? What good fortune can a guy have to have his brother-in-law's birthday be April Fool's Day? Am I right? But uh, i got to admit, over the, over the years, I, I have a lot of respect for my brother-in-law. I, I haven't really razzed him too awful much. Maybe a little bit here and there. I've passed up a lot of good opportunities. kind of begs the question. Today's obviously Easter, and it's April Fool's Day. Which one rules the day? I mean, because we're celebrating something that's phenomenal, something that's not natural, that's supernatural, something that's hard for some people to believe, an actual resurrection of somebody from the dead. And so I just want to kind of approach this morning with a question, and that is the resurrection, is it faith or is it foolishness? Which one rules the day today? Is it Resurrection Sunday or is it April Fool's Day? I had a a little bout with foolishness myself a few weeks ago. I'd been thinking about buying a dump trailer for my construction company. And a friend of mine pointed out that he'd seen a dump trailer for for sale on the internet for uh, $2,000. Well, brand new, they're about six, a little over $6,000. Used, they're usually around four or $5,000. $2,000 $2,000 and it had only been used twice. And so he gave me the page and I began to look into it. And a little while later, I got a, a message back that said, I'm sorry, I didn't get back to you. I was actually helping a neighbor sell that and they're not here right now. So they gave me their contact information and said, why don't you get a hold of them? And they'll give you the other details that you'd want. And so I contacted them as a lady and she said, yes, for sale. She said, I have to go overseas for a year with the military and I don't want to store it. It was my husband's. He died about three months earlier. He also was in the military. This is the last thing that I got to get rid of to go overseas. And I thought, oh, man, that is horrible. And so I wrote back and I I thanked her. I said, you know, first of all, I'm very sorry for your loss. And I would like to thank you and, and your previous husband for your serving in the military. Well, I sure hate to capitalize on your misadventure. And I kind of left it at that. And she said, well, do you want the trailer? And I said, yeah. And I even thought about paying more for it. I, I said, well, is there some place that I can see it or I can send one of my sons to see it that lives down by the cities? And she says, well, I'm in Illinois. And she said, here's the deal. Because I knew I'd be away, I lined it up with eBay. And uh, what it happens is they'll ship it to you. You got four days to inspect it. And uh, you decide whether you want it or not. And then they will release the funds to me. So you pay eBay now. You get that time period to decide if you want it, and then they'll release it to me four days later. And so eBay contacted me. They said, you got to go up and buy four $500 eBay gift cards with cash, and, and then take a picture of them, scratch off the thing, take a picture of it, email it to us. Everything looked official and everything. And I responded back to them, and I said, well, I can't do that. It's Saturday. I can't, my bank's not open. And so I called them and told them that, and they said, oh, we'll, we'll extend that for you until Monday. Go do it Monday. Well, Monday morning I woke up real early, which is not like me. I'm not an early riser. And so I thought, well, you know, this is just too weird. The price is too good, widow, military, all these things in the story. So I went and I thought, I'm not going to contact eBay by the contact information they gave me. I'm going to go look eBay up. And so I looked eBay up and I called them and I told them what happened. And the guy says, let me guess. The thing's like way too good a price, right? I said, yeah, it definitely is. It's a good deal. And he says, and they got our logo up there. And he says, they probably told you you got like four or five inspection days to look at it and all these things. And here it was a fraud. I was that close from getting taken for $2,000. And I thought, man, I should have recognized this a long time ago. This was stupid. I'm foolish. I want to bring that up to you today because if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not true, then I'm a whole lot more foolish than that. I mean, if I would have fallen for this dupe, which I pretty closely did, 
If I would have fallen for that, I would have been out $2,000. I give many times that amount to the things of God every year. Not only that, but I invested four years of my life. While my children are growing up, I'm working full-time and going to school full-time, focusing on learning these things of God during that time in my child's life. Just the time I've been here has been 20 years in this church proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, trying to spread the gospel, the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and to defend it as well. That means there's 20 years of my life wasted to trying to prove or defend something that's not true if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not true. In other words, I've got a lot vested in this. I'm better off doing something else with my life than, than being a fool for something that is not true. As we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that's exactly the point that the Apostle Paul is making, only he has a whole lot more vested in it than I do. As we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, let's start in verse 12. He says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You see, what he's saying is that the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ involves his death on the cross for us, his burial, his resurrection from the dead. And he's saying if that is not true, if all the hope that we have is for this life right now, he says we're the people most to be pitied. If you remember the Apostle Paul where we find him earlier on in his life, we find him climbing the ladder of success within the Jewish religion. He's a Pharisee. He said he's a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was zealous. He was trained in the school of Gamaliel, becoming more and more powerful, more and more influential in his society that he lived in. And then he came to believe in Jesus because Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And Paul's whole life changed. He was on his way to Damascus in order to go arrest Christians, see Christians put to death, imprisoned. And on this way, he gets confronted by the risen Christ and his whole life changes and he becomes the Apostle Paul. And so the faith that he once persecuted, he now turns around and begins to teach and to proclaim. But in doing so, his own countrymen, the Jewish people, would turn against him. He would be hunted. He would be imprisoned. One time they had to lower him down uh, on the outside of the wall of a city in a basket in order to escape for his life. At different times he was stoned and left for dead. He said he was beaten with rods more times than he could count. And so he said, look, I'm doing all of this because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ because he is alive again from the dead, which means he is the Son of God. He says, wow, (laughs) if that's not true, am I wasting my life or what? Well, let's look at that this morning. Consider that idea. The resurrection, faith or foolishness. Is your morning here, is is this a waste of your time? Or is it a really good investment of it? Well, I'm convinced it's a really, really good investment of it. And we're going to look at that here this morning. Faith and foolishness, as we look at the, in the first Corinthians chapter 15 and the Apostle Paul is talking about this exact issue, the first thing that he does is he lays out the proof of the resurrection. Let's go back to the beginning of chapter 15. And now it says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered you as of first importance 
what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, we preach, and so you believed. And so he begins this part of the letter with a proof of the resurrection. Well, there were some people in the church that were saying there was no resurrection from the dead. And the Apostle Paul is arguing against that. He's saying if there is no resurrection, then that means Jesus isn't raised either. But he's making the point, he's trying to prove to them that there is the resurrection of the dead because of the proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now he gives a couple different areas of proof there. The first area that he gives is prophecy. Notice he pointed out in those early verses that according to the scripture, Jesus was put to death according to the scripture, and then he was raised again according to the scripture. And what he's doing is he's looking back to places like Psalm chapter 16 and verse 10, where David would write and say, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. So he points to Scripture, to prophecy, to prove that Jesus Christ's resurrection was consistent with the Old Testament teaching. Not only does he do that, but he points to witnesses. And so he begins to list off all the, res- all the people that viewed his resurrection. He, he, he lists off the, the twelve apostles and he points to himself. But then he also mentions this group. He said, look, there's only over 500 people saw Jesus Christ alive again from the dead. He said, some of them have died. Most of them are still alive. Now, if we put ourselves in their place, that means you could go ask those people. If 500 people saw that happen, then you could go ask those people and you could expect a couple things. You could expect that, that they would have a story for you and that the stories would line up. That they would be consistent. And so these people had that kind of evidence. Well, what about us? We're, we're somewhat removed. We're nearly 2,000 years removed from these events that happened. How can we substantiate them? How can we know that beyond a doubt these things are true? Well, most of the scholars we look at, I think of William Lane Craig and some others, list four historical facts which must be explained. The first one is Jesus' burial. Now, as we think about Jesus' burial, the thing that makes that so provable is this guy named Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea, the Bible tells us that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was like the Jewish Supreme Court. So this guy's a bigwig in the Jewish society. He's very well known. Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pilate and asks for the body of Jesus. And then he takes the body of Jesus and buries him in his own tomb. The historians say... That confirms the fact that Jesus was buried. And the reason is because if Christians made up the story about Jesus being buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, Joseph of Arimathea is far too big of a player within society for that rumor to be able to stick. And so most of the people just say, yep, that's a historical fact. Jesus was buried. He was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. But not only do we have the burial of Jesus, we also have his empty tomb. There's an empty tomb there that has to be accounted for. 
How do we know that there was an empty tomb? Well, as we consider his empty tomb, this man named Matt Perman, I think, summarized it very well when he put this article into uh, the Desiring God website. He, he, he acknowledged that first the resurrection was preached in the same city where Jesus had been buried shortly before. And that's what, when we look at this early spread of the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it happened first in Jerusalem, right in the place where Jesus was crucified, right in the place where Joseph of Arimathea's grave was, right in the place where he was buried, and right in the place where there was the report of this empty tomb. Paul Alphas writes, The resurrection proclamation could not have been maintained in Jerusalem for a single day or a single hour if the emptiness of the tomb had not been established as a fact for all concerned. I mean, think about it. What if it happened here in Little Fork? If it happened in Little Fork, somebody came and said the tomb is empty and the tomb wasn't really empty, then what would we do? Well, we'd all just make a little trip out to Oakley Cemetery and we'd roll back the stone and you'd see that the, oh, there's body still there. Case closed. It's over with. You know, when Peter preached in Pentecost to the people that were there in Jerusalem, 3,000 people became Christians that day. That would never have happened if there wasn't an empty tomb. Secondly, the earliest Jewish arguments against Christianity admit the empty tomb. If you look back at uh, Matthew chapter 28, we find this. The guards come and tell the leaders the tomb's empty. What do we do? The leaders tell the guards, you tell everybody else that you guys fell asleep and the disciples came and stole the body. And we'll cover for you. And so they do. And Matthew 28 says, and that story was in circulation even to this day as Matthew wrote his gospel. The Bible is not the only place that we see this. There is uh, early Jewish literature that also argues against the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you know what they do? They acknowledge that the tomb is empty, but they come up with other reasons for why the tomb is empty. They say, oh, the disciples came and they stole the body. Well, if you think about that, what have they done? If they say the disciples came and stole the body, they've just acknowledged that there's no body there. That the tomb is, in fact, empty. And that's why historians look at that and say, well, even their enemies, who want very much for there to be a body there, recognize that there is no body. Dr. Paul Meyer calls the positive evidence of a hostile source. In essence, if a source admits the, a fact that is decidedly not in its favor, then the fact is genuine. And so he says that in itself is enough evidence to see that the tomb definitely was empty. Well, thirdly, the empty tomb account in the Gospel of Mark is based upon a source that originated within seven years of when it happened. Because you see, a lot of times uh, critics will say it's become a legend. It got added things along the years, along the way. But the problem is it takes time for it to do that. It takes much time for it to do that. And when we look at, at Mark's account of the empty tomb, we know that his account dates within seven years. And the reason that we know that is because it mentions the high priest, but it does not name him. And that's important because the reason is Caiaphas was the high priest at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and he would continue to be the high priest for the next seven years. If it happened after that, they would have had to mention the high priest and called him by name so they knew which high priest was, taken care, was involved in that. The account that he puts into his gospel was, had to be within the first seven years. So there's no time for a legend to develop. See, the empty tomb is supported by the historical reliability of the burial story. We already, we already mentioned that with Joseph of Arimathea. Fifth, Jesus' tomb was never venerated as a shrine. That was a custom in that day. If you had a holy man that died outside of his grave, they would build a shrine to venerate this holy man. Well, there's never a shrine made to Jesus' grave. Want to know why? Because there's no bones in it. He wasn't in there anymore. It wouldn't make sense. At the time of Jesus, there were some 50 shrines, and Jesus' grave was not one of them. Then sixth, 
Mark's account of the empty tomb is simple and shows no sign of legendary development. Eventually, there would be legendary development that would develop around the Gospel. But it's not, you don't find it in our Gospels. You don't find it in the New Testament, which was always uh, considered to be authoritative and, and the Word of God. Let me give you an example. The Gospel of Peter. You know, every once in a while somebody says, well, there's other Gospels out there. Why, don't, why aren't they just as valid as the other ones? It's because they were never legitimate. The church never recognized them from their inception. They were, they were false. They were, they were legendary. The Gospel of Peter was written in about A.D. 125. It's a forgery, obviously. It was not written by Peter. And they recognized that right off the bat. And when you look at the resurrection account of that Gospel, it's very different. It has uh, the religious leaders of the Jewish people and the disciples and everybody gathering around the tomb of Jesus on that Sunday morning and waiting for Him to come out. And then, when He does come out, it's not just Him that comes out, but actually three people come out of the tomb. And it says that these three people come out of the tomb and their heads reach up into the clouds. And then not only do they come out of the tomb, but a talking cross comes out of the tomb. So you can see there eventually there would be a lot of legendary stuff that would get built up around the Gospel and around the idea of Jesus. But it was never accepted by the early church as a as legitimate Gospel. Now, the Gospels that we have are very different. You don't find anything like that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John in those eyewitness accounts. And then seventh and lastly, the tomb was discovered empty by women. The word of women in that day, in that time, was not... Very valuable. Women were not allowed to testify in court in that society. And so if a woman's word is not considered as authoritative, if a woman's word is not considered as, as valued, then if you're going to make up a story, you're sure not going to have them be the ones to find the empty tomb. You're going to have somebody find the empty tomb who can testify. If that was made up, if that was legendary, there's no way that they would have had women be the first people to find the empty tomb and to testify of that to everybody else. So as we look at all these things together, D.H. Van Dalen, he says this, it is extremely difficult to object to the empty tomb on historical grounds. Those who deny it do so on the basis of theological or philosophical assumptions. Our faith is built on real history. Jesus Christ did rise again from the dead. If he did not, then everything about us crumbles. While Jacob uh, Kremer also, also said, by far the most exegete hold firmly to the reliability of the biblical statements about the empty tomb. And he lists 28 scholars to back up his fantastic claim. Not only was there an empty tomb that has to be accounted for, so there's the, there's the burial of Jesus that is solid historical fact. There's this empty tomb that there was an empty tomb is a solid historical fact. Also, we have these res resurrection appearances that these disciples would go around and tell everybody, I saw him alive again after he was dead. What is the truth of this? How can we get to the bottom of this? Well, there, if you think about it, there's only three alternatives that I can think of or that I can find to the disciples' claim that they saw Jesus alive again after he was dead. The first of the alternatives is that they were lying. They either have to be lying or they have to be hallucinating or the last one is that they're telling the truth, that they really saw Jesus Christ risen again from the dead. Most skeptics will acknowledge that they weren't lying. And the reason that they acknowledge that they weren't lying is because it would be so far beyond human nature to lie in this situation. Because when you think about it, as soon as you say they're lying, you have to ask yourself, why? Why would they lie? What did they have to gain? They didn't have anything to gain. They left businesses that were doing fine. Peter, James, John, a lot of those guys left family fishing businesses where they had other employees working for them. As we look through Scripture, Matthew was a tax collector, seemed to be doing very well. 
they all had lives that they could go back to. In fact, that's what they started to do. Peter said after Jesus was, was dead, I'm going back to fishing. Why would they lie? They didn't gain anything from it if it's not true. Because if they don't have a risen Savior, then there's no eternal life coming with it. So what would be the point? Now, I could see it somehow. If you look around at some of the ministries that are out there today, you got people that are out there conducting these ministries and they're taking offerings in five-gallon buckets and they're living in huge mansions and they're driving fancy cars and these people are, these people are making a killing off of this. If the disciples had gone on to make a killing off of this, then I, I would be very skeptical. But they didn't make a killing. You know what they made? Prison. They made death. Ten out of the twelve apostles would continue to preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ, though it, it's the preaching of the resurrection that cost them their life. Peter would be crucified upside down. And all those disciples died in horrific, horrendous ways, tortured to death because of preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter who you are. When you look at that and you say, why would they hold on a lie all the way to the end? If your life's at stake right at the end, and they say, all right, if you just, if you recant, which they were given the opportunity, if you recant, if you take it back, if you say the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a lie that we made up, then you can go home. Everybody would go home. Now, I'm not saying that people don't die for things that are not true. People do die for things that are not true, but they don't die believing that they're not true. People are willing to lay down their life for something that they firmly believe in, something that they, they are sure is the truth. And it might be, might be false, but they don't die for something that they know is false. So what about this idea of hallucinations? Maybe they hallucinated. I think that would take more faith to believe in that than the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to be honest with you. Let's look at four reasons why it cannot be hallucinations. One is that it does not answer for the physical nature. I read somewhere that people that lose a loved one, 30% of the people claim to have some hallucination of seeing their loved one. Well, could that be what happened with, with the disciples and with Jesus? No, for the reason that people don't sit down to dinner with those hallucinations. Right? Jesus came into the twelve and he came in and he said, look, touch me, feel me, give me something to eat. He proved to them that he was, that he was physical, that it was his body resurrected again from the dead. He showed them the marks in his hands. He even told Thomas, go ahead and put your finger in there. Put your fist in my side if you want to. They eat a fish lunch with Jesus. Hallucinations are always mystical. They're not physical. You don't sit down to dinner with a hallucination. So the physical nature, does, it doesn't answer for that. Not only that, but it doesn't answer for multiple testimonies. A mass hallucination. Have you ever had this experience where you go up to a friend and you say, you know what, I had this really crazy dream last night and you tell them your dream and they say, you know what, me too. No, you haven't had that experience and I haven't either because that's not the way dreams work. They don't work, they don't happen that way. Can you imagine all 12 disciples? Hey, we all had the same dream. Did you, man, you remember when this happened, that happened? And they all had consistent facts and consistent speech and everything. Well, multiply that times 500. 500 people at once all saw Christ risen again from the dead. Hallucination cannot answer for that kind of a scenario. It does not answer for the con conversion of Paul. The Apostle Paul saw the risen Christ several years later. So it can't uh, acknowledge that. And Paul sure didn't want to see Christ alive from the dead. He, was, he, had, he, had been a, uh, he had been there to put Stephen to death for preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul did not want to see any resurrected Christ. So it doesn't answer for Paul. And then lastly, it doesn't answer for the empty tomb that we already talked about. Even if you say it's a hallucination, well, you've got to go back to the empty tomb. You know, but all these resurrection appearances uh, answer that. And so what is, what is the conclusion? I think the last, one, the last one. They really saw Christ risen again from the dead. And that's why this uh, guy from Germany, Gerd Ludman, says it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. 
And then lastly, we think, well, where did they get this idea? The origin of the church and the disciples' belief in his resurrection. Why does the church exist if not for the resurrection of Jesus Christ? The skeptics would tell us that the church invented the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but it's exactly the opposite. The resurrection of Jesus Christ invented the church. There is no explanation for the beginning and the early growth of the church if there was no resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was all but dead until Jesus rose again from the grave. Luke Johnson says this, Some sort of powerful transformative experience is required to generate the sort of movement earliest Christianity was. He said there had to be something. There had to be some boost, some, some huge transforming power that took these doubting, scared disciples and turned them into the preaching machine that they were about the resurrection of Christ. N.T. Wright says, That is why as a historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind him. Without the resurrection, what do we have? We don't have an explanation. We don't have an explanation for the church. We don't have an explanation for the resurrection appearances. We don't have an explanation for the empty tomb. We don't have an explanation for any of it. Unless we admit that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is what answers all of it. William Lane Craig said, Since the belief in the resurrection was itself the foundation for Christianity, it cannot be explained as a later product of Christianity Further, as we saw, if the disciples made it up, then they were frauds and liars and alternatives that we have already shown to be false. That brings us to our next point, which is the prominence of the resurrection. If we look at the book of Acts, the early church, this passage is when the disciples try to replace Judas. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness of his resurrection. So notice the qualifications for an apostle. Have to have been with us from his baptism with John three years earlier. And what is his purpose? To be a witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a primary function of the apostle. Acts chapter 2, when Peter preaches at Pentecost, this is just 50 days after Jesus' crucifixion, says this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He goes on a few verses later, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Remember, this point that he's making, that's different than Christ. David's tomb is still with us. David's tomb still contains his bones. Jesus' tomb is empty. And he's standing right in Jerusalem, not far from the tomb when he said it. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn by an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And then in in Acts chapter 3, short time after that, Peter and John go to the temple to pray. They end up healing a guy that's lame, that's out at the gate. And, Jesus, and Peter gets the opportunity to preach to the crowd again and tell them how this guy got healed. And he said, but you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. You see, the church was built upon the testimony of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. That was the one central truth of the church. Jesus died and he rose again from the dead. And that's why it's such a prominent place. Look at in this passage that we're in, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
Paul says, I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. He says, this is the prominent information. This is, what, this is of first importance. In fact, he would tell them, you are saved by this if you hold your confidence firm. And that brings us to the very last point, which is simply the power of the resurrection. You know what caused this whole discussion to begin with? People were saying, look, there's no resurrection from the dead. We don't have any resurrection to look forward to. And he was saying, oh, yeah, you do. You do, and we know that you do because we know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true. It is absolutely true. If Jesus raised from the dead and you're trusting in Him, then so will you raise from the dead. He said, by this you are saved if you believe. He said, unless you believed in vain, in other words, believed without a cause, your faith was hollow, it was empty. He says, if it's not empty, you put your faith you put your faith in Jesus Christ before who you were told died on the cross for you rose again from the dead. Your faith is real. That means you have a glorious resurrection to look forward to. That is the power of Christ in our life.